have you ever had an itch that you just can't scratch? Or a, a craving that no matter what you do, you just can't seem to satisfy? If you've ever been married to a pregnant woman, then you know all about those cravings. Well, I should say, if you've ever been a pregnant woman, probably you know more about it than the rest of us do. Um, I remember when Amy was pregnant with, with both kids. She never really did, you know, the weird ice cream and pickles type stuff. But the one craving she had with both kids was ice. And I would, I would go to Chick-fil-A and buy one of those big industrial-sized bags of the crushed ice. And Amy would just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat ice. She couldn't get enough ice. And one day, I had, when she was pregnant with Asa, one day I had, I guess, what would be described as some kind of sympathy craving. Because I was in my office here at the church, I think it was a Wednesday, and about 1.30 that afternoon, I came down with the most overpowering craving for dill pickles that I've ever had in my life. And church body, I have smoked some Marlboro 100s in my day, but I have never wanted anything like I wanted dill pickles that afternoon. It finally got so bad that I literally left, went to Publix, got the biggest, most expensive jar of dill pickles that they had, opened them in my car in the parking lot, and just ate them like a drug addict, man. It was just, I hope nobody saw me do that. It was just the weirdest thing, the weirdest thing. And all of us, all of us know what it's like to have a desire for something out there that we just feel like we've got to get. So I wonder, what do you desire today? What does your heart really want? What does your heart want? A lot of us, maybe even most of us, we just want to be happy, don't we? Happy at home, happy at work, happy on the beach, happy in a hammock swinging under a shade tree somewhere. We just want to be happy. Some of us maybe are, are wired a little bit different, though, and we're not so concerned about being happy. We want to be successful. We want to make it. We want to prove that we matter. We want to claim our rightful place at the very top of the food chain. And then there's some that they don't care if they never make it or if they never make a dime. But there are some people, you know, they just want to be loved. You know people like that? Maybe you are people like that. They just want to be good enough, want to be accepted, want to know that they are in whatever circle it is. What do you really want today? More than what you want for lunch, more than a jar of pickles in the public's parking lot. What do you really, really want? That's what this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is all about. It's all about what the heart wants. And the Apostle Paul is going to write to this church about their desires. You'll see that when we get to verse 6. About their cravings. And it makes me think of something my mom used to say when we were kids. My mom is one of the world's just all-time great lecturers. And she used to say, she used to say to us, if we would really be wanting something and pitching a fit because we've got to have this, that, or the other thing, she would always say, you're old enough to know that your wants won't hurt you. Well, Paul is going to tell us today and tell the Corinthians here that you are old enough to know that your wants might kill you. Let's read 1 Corinthians 10.1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea 
And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown or scattered in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire. You see, there it is, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So as we've studied this long middle section of 1 Corinthians, I've showed you over the past few weeks now that the issue that Paul is dealing with is whether or not it's acceptable or maybe whether or not it's sinful for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. There was one group of Christians in Corinth who said, Paul, we don't care what you say. We don't care what our church thinks. We don't care what anybody else does. We are going to eat the cheap meat sacrificed to idols, and we don't care who stands in our way. But then there was another group of Christians that said, surely it must be a sin to participate in these temple sacrifices this way. Surely, Paul, we can't do this terrible thing of participating in idols. Well, Paul wants to come and help the church with that question. Well, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, fascinating to me, because he never comes and says, who's right? But rather he comes to show the church what's right. And what's right is for God's people to lay down their rights for the good of their church family. He says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 24. He says, or verse number 9, and in chapter 10 and verse number 24. To say, here's what it should look like for you to actually love other people more than you love yourself. To give up what you have coming to you for the good of others. And he comes to them in chapter 9, we saw last week, and he says, here's an example of how I have laid down my rights for the sake of the gospel. And here's how I have laid down something I should reasonably expect, his paycheck, for the sake of the message of the cross of Christ. 
And now he has another ace up his sleeve here in 1 Corinthians 10. And he's going to pull out the example of Old Testament Israel and how these people flirted with idolatry and flirted with sexual immorality, how they grumbled and how they tempted God and how they inflamed God's jealousy. And Paul's going to say all of that was given as an example to you so that you would learn from Old Testament history and so that you would not do what they did. And so the Apostle Paul wants them, verse number 6, to be careful of what they desire. Paul does not come and give them a rule. He does not come and say, Thou shalt not eat meat sacrificed to idols, or thou shalt eat meat sacrificed to idols. Rather, Paul wants to get to the issue of what their hearts really want. What were their hearts after? Did you know today that the Bible is so much more than just a collection of random rules that govern your behavior? but that the Bible is always chiefly concerned with what is happening inside of you. The Bible is always concerned with what your heart really longs for. And for many of us, just like the Corinthians, we long for all the wrong things. Or we long for all the right things more than we actually long for God. See, these people, they were longing for success. That's why they had to participate in idolatry. Because all the successful people did. And you've got to network. And you've got to make your business deals right there in the temple. These people longed for comfort and happiness just like we do. You know how hard it would be to be faithful to Jesus if all of your parents and all of your in-laws and maybe even your spouse and your kids still worshipped idols and they said, why don't you just come to the Christmas service at the temple with us? Well, maybe not exactly like that, but close. Why don't you just come? We're having homecoming back at the Temple of Aphrodite, and everybody would love to see you. All your friends are there. Wouldn't it be easier just to go along to get along? If you really want to be happy, if your driving, governing desire is to be happy, what are you going to pick? If your driving desire is to fit in with everybody else and be liked and respected, what would you choose? So Paul analyzes this issue and says it's all about what your heart wants. And when you want the wrong things, Paul says, it can cause you to collide with God himself because what you want might kill you. And Paul's going to show how that can happen and how it did happen in Old Testament Israel by showing three consequences that occur when we want the wrong things. The first consequence is that our desires can confuse God's goodness. Verses 1 through 5, our desires can confuse God's goodness. Now, Paul, in verse 1, sees a parallel between the situation in Corinth and the situations in a lot of Old Testament narrative stories. In fact, not only does Paul see parallels, but Paul actually sees continuity between Old Testament Israel and the church of God. And he says, they were our fathers. He says, those people, even though that wasn't our tribe, that was our tribe. Those are our people. Those are our stories. Because their God is our God. And we learn from what we find in Old Testament scriptures as we see how God interacted with his people. And Paul wants to point out right here in this passage that those people were a privileged people. Look at what he says about them. They were all under the cloud. That is, they all saw the Shekinah glory of God leading them through the wilderness. They were all baptized into Moses. That's kind of a weird thing. But he's saying that they were so wrapped up in Moses that they've been immersed into Moses' leadership and headship and identity. Where Moses went, they followed. What Moses experienced, they experienced. What Moses said, they were expected to obey. 
He says, they ate the same spiritual food. God fed them with angels' food, with manna for breakfast every morning. What did you eat for breakfast today? I had Pop-Tarts. These are a privileged people. They drink from this rock that followed them around the wilderness, and Moses would strike the rock or speak to the rock, and the rock would give water. These were a privileged people who, Paul even says, are participating with Jesus. He says, that rock was Christ. Now, that's beyond me what he means exactly when he says that. But in a real way, Jesus was with those people way back there as they journeyed through the wilderness. They were his people. They belonged to him. They belonged to us. And Paul wants these people to see how blessed the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament. And they were blessed. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God comes to them and he says to them, What nation has ever had what you have? What nation ever has a God who speaks to them the way I speak to you? What nation has a God who loves you the way I love you? What people can say that our God has done for us what you, God, have done for us? And yet, for all the blessings that the people of Israel had, it wasn't quite enough, was it? Always wanted just a little bit something different. Always wanted a little bit more. Always wanted to step out on the Lord and pursue another God and look beyond God or look around God or get out from underneath God to find something that they did not have. And so Paul says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, I hope you take the parallel here. It's not hard to understand, is it? Who has ever experienced what the people of Israel have experienced? Who has ever experienced the grace of God the way that the people of Israel experienced the grace of God? Who has ever been chosen in love the way they were chosen in love? Who has ever been delivered the way that they were delivered through the blood of a sacrificial lamb? Who could ever claim we have all these blessings from God? You can. You've experienced more grace than them. You know more truth than they did. You have experienced more of the goodness and the kindness and the promises of their God than they did. And yet, just like them, how many of us want to say, there's got to be something more? Man, our heart really just longs for something other than God. And so God is not pleased with them. And often God is not pleased with us. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? As Paul gives this long uh, list of blessings that the people of Israel had experienced, he says in verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased. Interesting, because God did so much, but apparently he wasn't happy with them. I want you to think about this for a minute. I want this to sit with you. God fed them, God clothed them, God delivered them, God protected them, God provided for them, God led them, God carried them, he says, on eagle's wings. And yet God was not pleased. I think it's an important point for us to consider today because there are so many of us who are bad to confuse divine privileges with divine pleasure. In other words, the good things that we have in life, man, I'm healthy, my job's going well, my family's doing good, everything's exactly the way that I want it to be in life. God must be really, really happy with me. But maybe all the good things you're enjoying in your life right now, you have because God is good. Maybe not because you've been real good. Maybe all the blessings that we enjoy speak more about God's relationship to us than they do our relationship to Him. Think about it like this. If you've ever raised a teenager, at some point you've probably contemplated murder. 
And maybe there's been that moment where you just wanted to just, just, just put your hands around their neck and just squeeze till their head popped off. Now, don't, don't laugh at that. Don't nod. Don't even, don't even flinch because I just don't want to testify in court against you. I love you, and I don't want to have to go and <laughs> say, Your Honor, I remember what they said. I remember one time my dad and I almost came to blows. It was the only time that the things ever really got, you know, really, really squirrely when I was a teenager. And I remember, I don't know what I'd done. I probably ran my mouth about something. But um, we, we got into it, and, and things got pretty, pretty intense. But you know that night there was still food on my table that he provided? Why? Because he was my father who was taking care of me, even though I probably needed to have somebody snap my head off. Sometimes in life, friends, we are not really pleasing God in the way we live. But God is so much better to us than we deserve. And it's easy for us to look at life and think, man, I must be doing okay. Everything must be happy. God must be really, really pleased. Maybe God is just really, really good. And so think about what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, you're trying to determine what do I want? What am I going to do? Who's in my way? Have you stopped to consider at this moment in life is what I'm doing pleasing God? Because most of us, we just float through life just a bundle of desires and hormones and choices and interactions, and we never or rarely stop to think, am I pleasing God? The way you're living right now, are you pleasing God? Should His concern or should His pleasure not be our first concern? Are you pleasing God right now in your life, in your attitude, in the way you work your job, meaning the way you lead your family, in the way you worship here in the house of God, in the way you love people around you that God has put in your circle? Are you pleasing God? Are you pleasing God? We want to be right. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. We want to be successful. Do we want to please God? Most of these people did not please God, and Paul says they were overthrown or scattered in the wilderness. There were two million adults that came out of Egypt when God delivered the people of Israel, taking them to the promised land of Canaan. Two million. How many of those adults that came out of Egypt made it to Israel? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Are we going to be the two or the two million? Are you going to be the two who please God? Or the two million who were overthrown because you confused his goodness and inflamed his jealousy. This is the second consequence that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians here, beginning in verse number 6. He says that our desires can inflame God's jealousy. That's the whole point of this passage, I think, from verse number 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, what kind of evil, Paul? Well... In this passage, Paul gives four specific sins that I want to point out to you that they were guilty of, that the Corinthians were really flirting with, and some of us maybe have just fallen in love with. And the first is the sin of idolatry. You can see that there in verse number 7. The sin of idolatry. Specifically, Paul quotes in verse 7, he quotes from Exodus chapter 32. And Exodus chapter 32 is the story of the golden calf. Not exactly one of the great wins in Jewish history. The people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt by the strong and mighty hand of God. God takes their leader Moses and they go up into the mountain and and for 40 days God is giving Moses the law and the people of Israel start to get nervous. They start to get restless. And they come to Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and what they say to him is basically this. Aaron, make to us gods who will go before us 
Because for this man Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron, you make us a god, and we'll just worship that god as if that god brought us up out of Egypt. And so Aaron says, all right. And he says, if y'all have got any earrings, just wrench them out of your ear and bring them to me. And he threw them in the fire and then somehow engraved a golden calf. And then it just degenerates into this insane worship service slash high school um, frat party or whatever. And, and the people just go wild and lose their minds worshiping this golden calf. Because they wanted a substitute God. They wanted a God they could see and a God they could manage. And a God they could pick up and move around. And a God that they could speak to, but who would never speak back. They wanted a God that they could control. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are in danger of flirting with idolatry, just like the children of Israel did. Now, that would be easy to see when you've got a bunch of half-naked people dancing around the golden calf, chanting or whatever. It would be easy to see in Corinth when... Uh, you know, they've got, a, uh, they've got a temple on every street corner the way we have a, a Baptist church on every street corner. It's not as easy to see for us in our hearts if we are flirting with idolatry. So let me just ask it to you this way, using church language that you know, but transferring it away from the Lord and unto idolatry. All the time we talk about Jesus being our Lord and Savior. Who's really your Lord? That is to say, who's really making the decisions for you? What is really calling the shots in your life? What is really charting your ambitions, your desires, and your future? Who or what is really your Lord? Who or what is really your Savior? Who is it that you depend on? What do you have to have to have the future you really want? What is it that keeps you safe? What is supposed to take care of you when all else fails? What's really your Savior? The Apostle Paul comes to this church, and in verse number 14, after confronting their idolatry, he says to them, run. That's what he says in verse 14, flee. The word flee is an English word that means run. <laughs> Get away as hard and as fast as you can run from idolatry. Why? Because the idols that we worship, they might make promises, but they will never keep them. They will demand sacrifices. And we give more and more and more until they destroy every single thing that they touch. The Old Testament way of putting it is that these idols, they have eyes, but they do not see. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have ears, but they do not hear. And those that worship them become like them. So what does that mean? It means that if you give yourself over to idolatry, you become lifeless. To give yourself over to dead gods is to give yourself over to death. Paul says, run as far and as fast as you can. Because he says we are participating with Jesus as the people of God. Now he gives this incredible little mini sermon about communion and the Lord's Supper in verses 16 through 22. We'll talk about that over the next few weeks as we move into chapter number 11. But Paul's sacramentalism, man, it's, 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 it's waist deep here in 1 Corinthians 10. And he's talking about our being part of the communion of Christ, our participation with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, all of these kind of things. And that's true. And it's worth remembering today that as the people of God, we are saved because we participate with Jesus. And I hope you know that today. If you you're, don't consider yourself a Christian or you're not sure about what it means to be 
a Christian. Or if you're just, you know, confused about some of this church stuff and you didn't know anything about golden calves before you came here today. I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this today. I want you to hear that Christianity, what we call salvation, to be a believer, all of those things mean that we participate with Jesus. That is, that his life becomes our life. That his death for sin, that that's become ours. And so there's no sin for us to judge, for God to judge. That his righteousness is our righteousness. So that we stand before God now declared as righteous as Jesus. And his resurrection has become our resurrection. So that eternal life is ours now. That we actually participate with Jesus in his relationship to the Father. So that the relationship the Son of God has with God the Father is our relationship. Salvation in the New Testament is participation in Jesus. It's so much more than just being baptized or praying a prayer in an altar or signing a card. It is enjoying forever what Jesus alone really has the right to. It is receiving all that Jesus is and offers by grace alone. And the incredible thing about that is not just that we can, but that God says to all of us, you can do that with nothing. Just come with nothing to offer God and take it all and receive it with open hands and an open heart. But Paul says, if we are the people who have participated with Jesus, if we are participating at the Lord's table, drinking the Lord's cup, eating his body, as it were, if you want to put it in John 6 type of language, he says, you need to realize that if you're participating in idolatry, while you're participating with Jesus, you're also hooked up with demons. Now things get really weird here in this part. And I'm not going to give you uh, all of my theories about demons and demonology today. But I do know this, they're real, and they hate your guts, and they want to see you in the hot part of hell forever. And if they can't do that, they want to destroy your joy, your peace, your family, anything good that God has given you, they want to corrupt it. I don't think Paul means that there is an actual demon named Allah or Buddha or whatever behind all of those gods, but there is a demon behind them of some kind, representing delusion as if it was truth. Darkness as if it was light. Damnation as if it were salvation. And Paul said, you better stay away. You better stay away from demonic influences that will destroy you. Why? Because God is a jealous God. That's what he says. The last verse that we read today in verse number 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's not the jealousy of a kid who's fighting over a toy dump truck in a sandbox. But this is the jealousy of a husband who loves his wife too much. To see her be unfaithful. This is the jealousy of a father who loves his children too much to see them given over to destructive behaviors that will corrode their lives. Paul says our God is a jealous God. He has loved us. He has given himself to us. He has chosen us and he has purchased us. And he is jealous over our love. And he loves us too much to let us be comfortable in our idolatry. So I want you to hear me today. Some of you right now are more miserable in your life than you've ever been. And everything you touch seems to fall apart in front of you. And it seems like everything in the universe is fighting against you. You have no idea what's happening or why it's happening. And what's happening and why it's happening is because your Heavenly Father loves you too much to let you continue to give your heart away to everything else but Him. And God says, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to stop it, and I'm going to humble them to bring them back to me. Why? Because he is a jealous God. So, idolatry, that's the first sin. There's only three more. The next one is sexual immorality. 
That went hand in hand with idolatry in the Old Testament. It went hand in hand with idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Sexual immorality seems to go hand in hand with false worship today. Why in the world is it that all these pervert cult leaders want to marry teenage girls? They go hand in hand, don't they? Why do they go hand in hand? Here's why. Because ultimately, idolatry is really just self-worship. And all the idol is is a tool to get what I really, really want. That's all it is. It's a means to an end to get what I really, really want. And if we are a people given over to desire and self-worship, then eventually we're going to give in to the desires of the flesh sexually. But Paul warns against it. And he says that these have terrible consequences. Do you see what he says in verse number 8? 23,000 fell in a single day. Some of you today, right now, are engaged in sexually sinful behavior. And you need to take this warning from the Old Testament stories of Israel. You need to know that sexual immorality will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your ability to trust people. It will destroy your sense of self-worth. It will wreck your identity. It will ruin your family. It can destroy your marriage. It can corrupt your children. And it can send you to an eternity apart from Christ. Sexual immorality, Paul says, you need to repent of that. Verse number 9, he talks about the third sin, which is tempting God, tempting Christ. What does it mean to tempt God? Tempting God is when you do something, make a decision or make a choice or engage in some behavior, where you try and box God into a corner and force him to act as only he can act. It's writing a check that only God can cash. It's choosing to, to sin, knowing, hey, God will forgive me. That's tempting God. Tempting God is jumping out of a plane without a parachute thinking, the Lord will save me. Well, the Lord determines when you enter this world and when you leave this world. Paul says, don't tempt the Lord. Then he says, and I wish we had so much time, so much more time, goodness. The fourth sin is verse number 10. Do not grumble. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a day to be in God's house. When the Word of God tells you so plainly that it is a sin to complain. Isn't God's grace so good in exposing to us our heart? The Old Testament Israelites, they complained about everything, didn't they? Complained about the food they didn't have. Complained about the food they did have. Complained about Moses. Complained about the weather. Complained about being freed from slavery. After 400 years of complaining about being slaves, complained about everything. The people in Corinth, they were complaining about everything. They were complaining about Paul. They were complaining about Apollos. They were complaining about Peter. They're complaining about one another. These people go eat meat sacrificed to idols. Can you believe they won't come with us to eat a hamburger at the idol shack? They complained about everything, and I wasn't there, but I bet they complained about the temperature. I bet they complained about the music. Somebody say amen. I bet they complained about the lights. I bet they complained about the service times. I bet they complained and they complained and they whined and they whined and they whined. Paul says, stop grumbling because deep inside your heart, complaining and whining and grumbling, that is the sin of being dissatisfied of how God has ordered your life. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 14, and I thought about going to a print shop and getting a big banner with these verses on it and hanging it up right here in the middle. This is the word of God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God does not reward complaints. He punishes them. But let's move on. This sermon is going to have a happy ending. I promise. If you'll hang with me for just a few more minutes, it's not quite 12 o'clock. It's only 11.59, so we're good. What is the third consequence of what happens when our desires run contrary to God's desires? Well, they undervalue God's faithfulness. And this is in verses 12 through 13. We undervalue, we, we confuse God's faithfulness. Israel had it all. They had it all. And yet they still traded everything they had, trying to get just a little bit more. And so they were overthrown. And Paul says to them in verse 12, you need to take heed, you need to pay attention, you need to be careful. Here's a warning. What's the warning? Everyone who thinks they stand, they need to take heed, lest they fall. Because maybe, maybe we're not as secure as we'd like to believe. Maybe everything we have could be taken from us in a moment. Maybe one phone call really could change our lives forever. Maybe one day we wake up smiling and happy and content without a thought to God. Could leave us broken on our face before Him. Take heed. Take heed lest you fall. You see, these people in Corinth, they had a really high view of themselves. It's the whole problem in the whole book. I hope you picked up on that by now. They've got this overinflated sense of how great they are. The scripture says that pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit goes before a fall. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That the more I am determined to lift myself up, the more God is determined to bring me down. Because I am not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around me. And if I try and live in a world that does revolve around me, it's not going to work. And God is resistant to it. And God is fighting it. It's all about, it's all about self. And Paul says, if you're wrapped up in yourself, you need to beware and you need to know and you need to recognize that it could all fall apart in an instant. And so the Corinthians probably heard all this. Warnings about idolatry. Warnings about sexual immorality. Warnings about the coming judgment of God on them. And they, they kind of started to panic. I know some of you are panickers when you hear sermons, especially about the judgment of God, because you leave every sermon feeling like you've been beat up. You leave every sermon feeling like you've been called out. You leave every sermon feeling like, you know, you're such a failure and you're never going to be a good Christian. And here are the Corinthians, man. They've worshipped idols for hundreds of years. Everybody buys prostitutes. They're just consumed with all kinds of sexuality and sin and mess and junk. And Paul comes in, man, with both barrels blazing. He says, y'all need to cut it out or get right with God or God's going to cut you down like he did the children of Israel. He lays on them a good camp meeting sermon. And they're thinking, how in the world can we ever do this? Paul, there's no way. We can't just get our act together, Paul. This is not easy. This is hard. What are we supposed to do? And Paul gives this verse. Look at what he says in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Do you see that? God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that not the most incredible promise that you could ever hope to find tucked away in a place like 1 Corinthians? Because this church, they were anything but faithful to God. They weren't committed to Him any more than the people of Israel were committed to God. 
They were distracted. They were divided. They were consumed with all kinds of sinful behavior. And God comes to them, or Paul comes to them and says, I just want you to know, as unfaithful as you might be, God is still faithful. God is committed to you and he's pulling for you so much that every time you are tempted and you think you can't resist, he's going to leave a back door of escape wide open for you. He's never going to let you suffer temptation that is greater than you can handle. God is faithful. And what Paul does is he puts before this church and he sets before you today the only real remedy that is ever going to pull you out of yourself. And that is a God who loves you more than you love you think on that a God who says to us at our worst I will give you grace who says to us in our sin I will give you salvation who says to us in our unfaithfulness I will give you my faithfulness folks this is the good news here in first Corinthians chapter number 10 that our God loves us with a love that will never fail it will never quit it will never give up. It will never walk out. It will never let us down. But as sure as we run from Him, He's always running after us. As sure as we try and get away from Him, He's always wrapping His arms around us and hedging us in. Yes, sometimes hedging us in with thorns of judgment. But He's always wrapping His people up saying, I'm not going to let you run forever and I'm not going to let you run far. Under God today, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard about it from the life of the prophet Hosea, right? His wife Gomer gave herself over to adultery and immorality. But in Hosea chapter number 3, Hosea comes after her and he says, All I've got's 15 pieces of silver and all I've got's a couple of wagon loads of barley. But he said, I'll give you more than she's worth and I'll give you everything that I have just so I can bring her back to myself because I love her too much to let her go. And that is what Paul says to this church. It's what he says to you, church. You can't tell I'm excited about it today. He says to us, listen, God is faithful. He is better. He is better than the idols you could pursue. He's certainly better than whatever you're griping about. He's better than sexual temptation. Over and over again. Over and over again. God pursued Old Testament Israel, did he not? What was their story? God sent them Moses and the law, and they said, we'd really like a golden calf. God didn't destroy them, but brought them into the promised land. God let them march around the city of Jericho, right? And the people said, you know, get into Judges 1 and 2, we'd really like a different God now. We'd like Baal or Asherah, that's going around this part of the world. The Philistines have some incredible gods. Give us one of those fish head gods, we'll take that. And it's back and forth. The people's hearts are always back and forth, right? Between idols. And then some great deliverer will come along and deliver them in the name of the Lord. A prophet will come along and preach to them in the name of the Lord. And they will say, oh, we were so wrong. God save us. And God loves his people in spite of themselves. And God delivers them. Lord, we're so thankful we'll be devoted to you forever. And then what do their kids do? Get into First Kings, man. They're bringing back the golden calves. You're Jeroboam. They're like, man, let's, let's go. We miss that golden calf stuff. And yet, as disobedient as they were, what happens? God sends them Isaiah. And God sends them Jeremiah. God sends them Hosea. God sends them all of these faithful prophets who say, God is angry. Repent. Turn from your sin. Flee from your spiritual idolatry. 
free, flee from your, here's a good King James word, kids, flee from your whoredoms. And they say, if you don't, you're going to face my judgment, you'll face my wrath, you'll face the curses of the law coming upon you because you've committed immorality and idolatry. But if you repent, they all say, if you repent, you can come back. What did Hosea say in Hosea chapter number 1? That's all ain't my people. But if you repent, I will welcome you back and I will cause you to flourish. And God continues to pursue and continues to chase them down. Until finally, here's how Jesus saw all of it. He says, until finally, God did not just send a message, but God himself came as the word. And what did the people of Israel do to him? They tried to silence him forever. But three days after he died, the word of God rose from his tomb to say forever to unfaithful sinners, to my people that just can't quite get it together, even death itself could not stop me from loving you, and it could not stop me from pursuing you. And as soon as we get that, or as soon as it gets us, man, those idols and those golden calves, they're just not that exciting anymore, are they? All that success I crave, what is that really? All that love that I'm after. Y'all, I'm loved already. All of this happiness, all this happiness that we're trying to pursue through all these different means in life. Man, I've been happy in church today while some of y'all slept. I mean, look here. I'm happy in Jesus. And yet we're so quick to say, I'd really like to have a substitute God. You know, some of you today need to be stripped of your overconfidence. Because you're in a path of your life right now where you are running right into the, the frustration and the jealousy of God. Some of you today have fallen long and hard. And you're thinking today, God would never love me, care for me, or want me. God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't make the good good enough. He makes sinners righteous. He invites you to come to him and say, Lord, you really are better than all this junk that's destroying me. Lord, create in me a heart to desire you above everything else. We're going to stand together today. Our musicians are coming. We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we do, I want to invite you to come to him today and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Change it. Change my heart. Today, some of you realize, I hope, that the difficulties in your life are not really the difficulties in your life. It's not challenges and frustrations and stress. The difficulty is your heart. Heart. Some of you have grown cold in your heart. Some of you have got a hard heart. Would you come today and say, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. Make me clean. Make me new. Make me yours, holy and forever. Let's sing this today as we prepare to respond to the word of God.